If you want to follow along as I read, you can turn to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, so it's just like at the very end of the Gospel. Um, I am going to read a very long passage, um, but it's, uh, it's a story that's easy to follow. So, um, starting in Luke 24, 13. Um, This is after the resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas said, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Um, it's, uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, my name is... Travis, as Eric said, and um, I know some of you, and um, I, uh, I always feel this, um, I don't know, 
this lovely joy at being with God's new groups of God's people because we are part of the forever family of God, right? We, we are the ones who will uh, spend eternity together if indeed we are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And this is the story of our brothers. Um, so <laughs> these disciples are on their way to a small village and Jesus has risen from the dead and the news that the tomb is empty has happened, but they still don't understand what, what's going on. So they're, I mean, in their minds, um, the one that they had placed all their hope in has died brutally. And if you remember in the Gospels, I mean, Jesus kind of signals that this is going to happen, right? He's not, he's not hiding this. It actually shouldn't be a surprise, but for them, it's just unimaginable. And now, not only has he been killed, but his body, right? So um, what normally happens if somebody is crucified, especially if they're poor, right? I mean, you're crucified usually for treason, and Jesus was executed for treason, for being disloyal to the state. And they would take the body, and they would just throw it in a pit and then cover up all the bodies together and move on and dig another pit. I mean, it was you, uh, you receive shame on the cross and shame in death, but Jesus' body had been taken by Joseph of Arimathea, which is a crazy thing because Joseph puts himself at risk and he's a wealthy and powerful man, puts his body. So, I mean, there's kind of a relief that Jesus' body is not going to be desecrated, but now it's gone. So for them, they, have, they cannot even think that he is actually risen from the dead. It just doesn't compute. I mean, you have to understand, right? So for us, people die in hospitals. For them, people died in homes. They knew dead people stay dead. Doesn't compute. His body's gone, and they're just devastated. And we we can tell from the language, right? They're close followers. They know all the disciples. They've been following Jesus. And I mean, they're they're just barely making it, right? And they're probably, I mean, this this guy just kind of tags in with them. People would often do this when they're walking on the road, right? Just kind of safety in numbers. And so they're they're not paying any attention to this guy. They're just going on and on about their despair. Um. And then it says that when Jesus starts talking to them, they are kept from recognizing him. It's kind of like, and I think this is actually probably what's going on, that God, because they had things they didn't understand spiritually, he kept them from recognizing him physically. Their lack of physical, mental recognition, being able to go, whoa, this is Jesus, That is because they didn't understand things about Jesus. And it's so many things about this that are cool, right? So Jesus, when when they get to Emmaus, he's like, I'm going to go on. And and he he has been preaching to them. He's been saying, look, guys, do you not understand? And he explains from Moses and all the prophets. And by the way, I, I know that sometimes for us, 
you know, like reading the Gospels is like way easier. Reading the New Testament is way easier than reading the Old Testament. But you have to understand that the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Right? And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it's all the Bible. He goes through all the Bible and he tells them it is necessary that the Christ should suffer and die before going into his glory. <clears throat> and they're still not completely getting it. But their hearts are burning, right? These guys are not scoffers. They're not skeptics. But at the same time, they haven't gotten it yet. And so he's talking, and their hearts are burning in them. And then he gets there, and he's like, well, all right, I'm going to go on. And they're like, no, 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 please, please stay. Because he's demanding a response. And by the way, Jesus is always demanding a response from us. Right? So if you're here and you're hearing God's word, he actually wants you to respond. He's actually like talking to you. He, he wants us to say to Jesus, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. No, I, I want more. Right? He's always calling for that response. And so what happened, and I'll talk about this kind of at the end, what happens? They sit down, and he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and breaks it, and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. This is important. Okay. Now, I'm going to get kind of nerdy, and then I'm going to bring it home that I think to our lives, all right? So if you stay with me, I hope this will be worth it, okay? All right, so um, there's, a, there's a New Testament scholar who's one of those people who is like helpful and not helpful, right? Um, says some really awesome helpful things. Has also said some deeply unfortunate things. So this is not a blanket endorsement of this scholar. But the guy's name is N.T. Wright, and he's pointed out something that is so... Yeah, I see some laughter. Like, we know who this is, Right? Does Jimmy talk about him? Is it your pastor? No? All right. So anyway, he, he's done a lot of work in like what first century Jews were like and what they thought. And one of the things that he pointed out, right, so the Jews, they were kept in the Old Testament, Old Testament. They were taken to Babylon and kept captive in Babylon for 70 years. It's called the Babylonian Exile. So like their temple was burnt, their city was destroyed, they were carted off to Babylon and they had to live there during that time. And I mean, I mean, so many things changed in Babylon for them, some good, some bad. And then they get there, the Persians like, you're free to go back, right? And so we're going to go back to the Holy Land and we're going to rebuild the temple. And when you read the book of Malachi, the Persians have sent them back, right? The very end of the Old Testament, Persians have sent them back, they built this temple and and when they, you know, when they finish looking at this temple, like the old men look around and they just start crying because it's so lame compared to Solomon's temple. It's like just not even. And the priests, I mean, they've just gotten back and the priests are like not good. They don't really love God. This isn't really worship. They've got their land and it's like, is this it? Is this all we got? God gave us everything back and we got nothing. And I mean, and you know, and then different people take them over and now the Romans got their boot on them and uh, 
and the people, you know, you have this great big temple that Herod built, and the people who run the temple are totally corrupt and lining their pockets with everything going on, and the rulers are corrupt. I mean, Herod is not even a Jew. Not even a Jew. And so they're like, you know, we are still in captivity. We're still in captivity. We are still in exile. The, the Romans, they got their boot on us. And our, the, our leaders are terrible. The priests are terrible and the kings are terrible. And, and we're not keeping the law. I mean, it's just not, this is not great. Right? In Jesus' day. And they are looking for a Messiah like David who will walk into Jerusalem and pull out a sword. And be like this guy, this guy named Judas Maccabeus, who, you know, his father pulls out a sword and says, all who are zealous for the law, follow me, right? They are looking for a guy who is absolutely righteous and a total warrior. And he's just going to throw out the Romans. He's going to clean out the evil priests. He's going to be a good guy and sit on the throne. He's going to redeem Israel. That's what they want. That's what their problem is. Their problem is on the outside. My problem is external. My problem is the nation. My problem is the culture. We need people keeping the law, keeping all the rules. As a matter of fact, I mean, the Pharisees, they came up with these elaborate schemes to keep the law because they thought God's word was important. They were, and so, I mean, it's like, they, how many steps can you take on the Sabbath? Well, they figured it out. There's this Pharisee, he was like super famous. They thought this dude was awesome, right? He, uh, he goes, he, he takes a trip, he figures he, he knows how far he's going to go, but he doesn't make it back home before he runs out of steps because he's actually counting the steps. So he sits down within distance of his home in the sun and he waits for the sun to go down before he goes home. And they're just like, yeah, this guy's great, you know? Misses the whole point. This is what we do. Um, they don't get the depth of their problem. This is, this is the problem. They don't get the depth of it. They don't understand that the depth of the problem in our hearts cannot be fixed by a scheme that's just about keeping the law. Um, they don't get the evil of their sin, which is why they think that if they just sacrifice animals well enough, if we just sacrifice the animals great, that that's going to do it. See, like, one of the things in the Old Testament, and it's actually clear once you read it with eyes that are framed by the cross, one of the things that's clear in the Old Testament is it's never ultimately about the animals. The animals are pointing at something. Pointing. They're saying, sin brings death. You have a problem. You have a debt. Someone has to die. But the truth is, there's no way that an animal ultimately can take our place. There's no way. 
No animal is worth your life, and no animal can pay for our sin. We don't... And this is where today our lack of theology can really get us, right? We think that theology is not... um, is not helpful and not, I'm not supposed to walk in front of the speaker. Okay. I'm not walking in front of the speaker. Um, the evil of a sin does not simply consist in the evil of the act, but it also consists of the evil of the person that we act upon. It is more it is it would be sinful for me to punch my friend eric it would be terribly sinful awful it would be more evil for me to punch a child be more evil for me to punch a police officer as a representative of the state be more evil for me to punch the president as representative of the nation And my consequences would be different, wouldn't they? Consequences for punching Eric or child or police officer or the president, those would all be vastly different consequences. And when I tell you that, you're like, well, of course they are. Why? It's all a punch. No, it's not just all a punch. It's a punch directed at a person. And because the... Because the president, right, whether or not you like whoever the current president is, the, the president carries the glory of the country and represents the, sta- the country itself, it carries more consequences. And we're all like, yeah, of course, of course. Well, what if the person that we strike at is infinitely greater than us? What if it's not the leader of a country? What if it is a God who is infinitely greater than we are? This theological thing says any, any, um, uh, any attribute God has, God has infinitely. So if God has something, he has an infinite amount of it, which means that there's no end to it. There's no measurement. So what, what does that mean? That means our sins against God are infinitely evil and they incur infinite penalty. And we have a hard time getting our minds around that because we walk around comparing ourselves to each other. I mean, even if I look at um, Clay and I say, Clay's a little better than me, but not that much better than me. he's He's a good guy, but... He's better than me, but not that much better than me, right? Just a little. <laughs> we, can, we can do that. Or, you know, we can look at somebody and say, oh, well, that, that, person, that person's worse than me. Maybe not a whole lot worse. And we really like it. I mean, this is, this is why we read the tabloids in the supermarket, even, you know, like just the, the front. <laughs> or we watch just horrible things because we're like, there are people who are a lot worse than me, right? I just, it's comforting. It's comforting. Um, 
That's not real comfort. That's not real sucker. Um, it's not real sucker. It's false. Because our problem is not compared to other people. Our problem is compared to an infinite and holy God. And so we're like a... When I was a kid, I think I was in first or second grade. I don't know. Our playground, this, this reminds me a little bit of my school growing up. We didn't have air conditioning in our school in Texas. Um, and, uh, but we had a, uh, a drain field that would get backed up or something. And you had to learn to go around the drain field on the playground. Um, I fell one time, slipped and fell playing a game in there. Mom had to come get me. We're like kids who've all fallen in that drain field, and we're like pointing at each other going, ah, but you got it worse than I do. You have it on your front and your back, and I just have it on my front, right? That's how we are, comparing our sin. Our sin is compared to an infinitely holy God. And we look at him, for me, that's terrifying. I see myself very differently when I look at myself compared to an infinite holy God. No animal is going to fix the problem. And along with that, just I was thinking about this last night, not only do they not get the evil of themselves, they don't get the love of God. Because they don't understand God's, their own evil, they don't understand God's love. Um, because what Jesus did is unimaginable. Jesus, um, and of course, before he's incarnate, he's just the Son, the Son leaves the perfect courts of heaven. I mean, like we, we think of... Uh, um, we think of Christmas, it's also sweet. But like, it's more like somebody dropping into a war zone, right? Have you ever seen Black Hawk Down, you know, when they just make the decision to drop into the war zone? That's what the son is doing. He's dropping into just the most difficult circumstance you could imagine, and he's putting himself in the most difficult position you could imagine, and he does it all so that he can live a perfect life that he doesn't have to live on our behalf so that he could die in our place. That does not compute. I was thinking, um, just remembering, for those of us who are older, remembering 9-11, you know, and just remembering that scene of, you know, the planes hit the towers, and we all saw the footage of those firefighters in all their gear, and they are just running directly to the burning building. And then, of course, it falls, and so many of them died, and yet we still watch that footage. They are running into a burning building to die. Jesus is running into the wrath of God that we deserve on our behalf, and it's unimaginable because they cannot imagine that kind of love. Our love is so weak. When, we, when I make a tiny sacrifice for another person, I feel so good about myself. I do. I'm, it's terrible, but I do. Jesus 
wraps his arms around us and throws himself into the wrath of God. How does that even... That doesn't make any sense. And yet, that is exactly what God was describing all the way through Scripture. Right? I mean, from the garden. Um, You know... You will crush, you know, he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel, you know, Genesis 3.15. And then, you know, I mean, going through, I mean, you know, Psalm 22, describing the crucifixion, and Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, it's, God is going through, it's it's almost like, um, I was thought, like, it's like a Babe Ruth, you know, the great Bambino, you know, walking to the plate and pointing to center field. That's where I'm putting it. And of course, some people are just like, yeah, there's no way he's going to pull that off, right? And through the, through the Old Testament that Jesus preaches to them, God says, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Why? Because there's no other way. God does not have to save a single one of us. None of us deserve saving. And we want to think that we deserve saving and we want to think that other people deserve saving. And when we say that, We are diminishing an understanding of God's love because God's love is decisional. He didn't save you because you deserve to be saved. He saved you because he chose to save you. And you're like, that's really harsh. No, because if you didn't choose, if you didn't earn his saving, if you weren't cute enough or pathetic enough or whatever for him to save... What that means is that when you blow it, you don't lose it because it's not based on what you did. It's based on his decision to save you. You don't deserve to be saved. He chooses to save you. He places his love on you. And that is the only way any of us are going to be saved. There's like, why, why didn't he come up with some other scheme? You know, like... You know, maybe if we just crawl across broken glass or, you know, whatever it is, and then, you know, we'll be saved. And it's like, no, no, no. Because nothing else will deal with our sin. Nothing else. It's the only way. Um, stinking. You know, we, uh, have this, have this view, I don't know. We struggle with understanding the evil that is within all of us that we're born with. Um, that the seed of every sin is inside all of us. That, that babies, babies are innocent not because um, not because they're not fundamentally corrupt, it's because they don't have the ability to do much, 
They don't have the ability to, to get up and take money out of your wallet or disobey you or whatever. They, they don't. They don't have the ability. But they have all the inclination in the world. Because as soon as they start to have ability, they start sinning just like the rest of us. It's super disappointing. Right? You hold them, it's like, oh, you know. I mean, you're meeting their needs, and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, like uh, all the rest of my kids are sinners, but this one's going to be awesome. <laughs> and, then, and then they sin, and then when they get to be teenagers, they teach you, if you haven't learned already, that it's also about you and your sin. It's, it, the whole thing is awful, right? <laughs> we have this, we have this the grinding inclination to sin that we can't fix, and that God is rescuing us from. We're all born with death in us. And here's the deal, and this is maybe where I upset some of you. All of us believe that we're still in exile, and we tend to devolve to Christian nationalism or Christian separatism and forget the gospel. All of us tend to lower our understanding of the gospel to believe that the problem is really on the outside. Such a horrible culture we have. True. Such a horrible government we have. True. People aren't keeping God's law, and, you know, I, I just, oh, yeah, yeah, all true. But what's really the problem? The real, the real problem is my heart and my sin because that is the way the world has always been. Tim Keller has said, and I believe he's, he's accurate in this, there has never been a culture as much like first century Greco-Roman culture as today. If you want to know what Greco-Roman culture was like, first century, in Jesus' day, Greek and Roman culture, it's us. We're it. And for, the, for them, the problem, they thought it was everything outside. It's not. It's in us. The problem is in our own hearts. And that does not mean that there are not sinners in the world. I mean, it doesn't mean that people around you don't sin. It doesn't believe that there's not things that need to be confronted or fixed or whatever else. But the primary problem is a problem of the heart within each one of us. And as soon as we move off of that, we become judgmental Pharisees, ineffective, and we sink into our own sin. Yeah. Yeah. So, while they're eating, um, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And I mean, of course, what, what are all you thinking when I read this? This, right? Thinking of the Lord's Supper, right? And yet, you know, you, you read scholars and commentaries, they're like, well, this is not about the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper hasn't not really happening yet in the church. I mean, this is just Jesus afterwards. But the thing is that everybody who's hearing this gospel for the first time, which is written somewhat after the events, they hear it and everyone says, Lord's Supper. Not only that, but Jesus in John 6 you know, John is the only person who gives us Jesus' sermon when he made all the bread. Do you remember this? So Jesus, you know, he feeds the 5,000, he makes the bread, and what does he say? 
Um, he, the sermon that he gives, does anybody remember the sermon title? I would love for somebody to say it. What is the sermon title for the sermon that Jesus gave when he fed the 5,000? What's that? No, no. That's a, that's, a, that's a great, that is a sermon title. That's not the same one, though. That he, he did the fish and loaves, but he actually pretty much gives us the title. It begins with I. I am the bread of life. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. If you feed on me and drink my blood, you will have life. What does that make you think of? The Lord's Supper. And people are like, oh, no, that can't be about the Lord's Supper. It's before the, even the Last Supper. Do you not think that Jesus knew where all of this was going? I mean, if God, throughout the entire writing of the Old Testament, which is a thousand years of revelation, if God takes a thousand years of revelation and gives us his plan 100% all the way through, don't you think that Jesus in his ministry knew where all of this was going? And this is why Jesus, when he feeds them, he is, also, he is echoing the Last Supper, right? Um, Matthew 26. Um, Jesus takes bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. It says pretty much the same thing in Mark. Um, Luke is also very close. John, verse 53 of chapter 6 says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So why did they get it at the meal? Why does Luke, by the Holy Spirit, want us to know about these guys and that they got it at the meal? It's because at the meal, all of this comes together. Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. It is the only way. It is the absolute demonstration of God's love. It is our only hope, and in it we find healing power, strength, forgiveness, fellowship with God, connection with each other. Why do I feel this overwhelming sense when I come and spend time with you? Because we are connected through the body and blood of Jesus forever. And when we go out, I can't remember, I'm I'm not going to try to put my brain to capture, but there was something that I've picked up here either in something you wrote, I don't know. Anyway, when we go out and we share the gospel with people, we are inviting them into that. Our family, created by our Savior, we are, we are, we are begging someone to be part of our forever family and to be in the arms of Jesus so that he receives God's wrath and they don't. It's the most frightening and wonderful and comforting message in the world. And this is what the Lord's Supper is about. That's why Paul says, um, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what we do 
looking forward. Because if God kept his promises before and sent his son, when he says that he will return, how much more confidence that we ha- are we supposed to have that he's going to return? They were waiting in hope and he hadn't shown up yet. We know that he's shown up. And so we have even more reason to believe that he will return for us. That's what this supper is about. So, the the Lord's Supper is about Jesus coming to die for us. The whole Bible is about Christ coming to die for us. The Bible is not primarily interesting stories, ancient history, and some moral advice. It has those things in it. The Bible is primarily about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we come to recognize and know him when we approach it that way. And this communing that we do, this recognition, is not something that we simply do alone. We actually do it with each other, which is why we gather, which is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And that when we do, When we have become slow of heart and foolish, we re-recognize, we re-recognize Jesus. We recognize him again in the breaking of the bread. So, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, giving thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he takes the cup. He says, this cup is a cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as Paul said, as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're not doing some just magical ritual. We are making a proclamation, and by taking the Lord's Supper together, we are communally saying this is what we believe and trust in. Now, what that means, now, I mean, probably all, you know, y'all know each other. I mean, I, I don't know. Every adult here could be a believer. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe so. But what I want to tell you is this is a family meal. So that because this is an act of believing and proclaiming, if you do not yet believe, if you're not yet a person who's declared their their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, has not been baptized, um, sorry about that, um, we ask that you wait. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. Also, without going into 1 Corinthians 11, which you can go to if you don't believe me, God says, if you are refusing to repent of your sin, particularly if you're refusing to be reconciled to your brothers and sisters, let it pass. Don't eat and drink condemnation on yourself by denying the truth of the gospel in the way that you're living while you're taking the meal. Have I, is, am I missing anything, or do I just go straight in the Lord's Supper? Am I good? All right, all right. Um, so, um, I want to, I was telling myself I wasn't going to do this. Now I'm going to do it. Um, so, small thing. B- 
because our faith is both individual and communal, I'd like to ask that you take the Lord's Supper individually and communally by doing it this way. Take the bread as an act of your own faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, personal communion, whenever you're ready, and then we will drink the cup together as a communal declaration of our faith.